Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. This is Richard Jacobs, uh, Executive Director of the Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. I have two guests today. Uh, Dr. Clive Svensson is the Director of the Cedars-Sinai Board of Governors Regenerative Medicine Institute. And uh, he has a postdoctoral fellow with him, Dr. Arun Sharma. And it uh, looks like they're studying COVID-19 specifically on how it interacts with heart cells and infects them. So, guys, thanks for coming. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for inviting yeah. us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah what, what uh, I mean, maybe it's obvious, but what turned your interest to looking at, uh, you know, COVID's effects on people's hearts? Well, I'll just kick off with a little background. And, you know, we uh, see the Sinai Regenta Medicine Institute is really focused on the use of stem cells to both model and treat disease. And... <clears throat> I'm actually <clears throat> excuse me, chairing the uh, task force there for COVID-19. And one of the things we kept seeing in the early patients, at least came in in April, was effects on the heart. And we weren't really sure if those effects were secondary to the infection through kind of a cytokine storm or whether the heart cells themselves might be uh, getting affected by the virus. And at that point, there was really little understanding of whether heart cells you know, could even be infected uh, with the uh, SARS virus that causes COVID. And Arun in my lab was working on differentiation of iPS cells induced pluripotent stem cells. You probably know all about those. Uh, we can explain more if you don't, uh, but into sure. heart cells. And uh, he really took the lead and, and asked me if it would be possible to uh, see if heart cells were, we use the word susceptible, which means, you know, could they be infected? Uh, with with this virus, because certain cells can be infected, and uh, we knew from the literature, and certain cells can't. And I'll maybe let uh, Arun take over. Yeah, so sure. Clive gave a pretty good explanation of uh, the rationale as to why we wanted to do this. So we're able to mass produce these contractile human heart cells or cardiomyocytes um, by the billions in in our laboratory. It's a process that takes about you know a few weeks to create to to finish, and since we have you know so many of these human heart cells ready to go, we decided to uh, see if they would actually be susceptible to SARS-CoV-2, which is of course the virus that's predominantly which is causing COVID-19. We've actually got a collaborator over at UCLA just down the road who has access to a purified form of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And we decided to basically take some of our contractile heart muscle cells over to UCLA, conduct some preliminary experiments to see if these cells are actually susceptible to infection. And indeed, they are. Um, so after figuring out that they're susceptible to infection, we actually did a number of additional analyses looking at changes in their genetic profiles, as well as changes in their function as well. So what are the, um, the starter cells you're using and then you're, that you're inducing pluripotency in? Right. So we are using a control line, which is uh, uh, from a healthy control patient. 
that we've differentiated into cardiomyocytes. Of course, there are a variety of different iPS cells that we can utilize for this purpose. And in fact, Cedar sinai has a large repository of induced pluripotent stem cells from a variety of different individuals. But for this particular experiment, we wanted to focus on, uh, as a pilot experiment, a single iPS line from a healthy control individual. Of course, one thought is um, there may be person-to-person differences in terms of susceptibility to viral infection. And of course, it's something that we've seen already during COVID-19. Some people are susceptible to the virus and other people aren't. One thought would be that if we could actually produce iPSCs from different people uh, and subject those different iPS cardiomyocytes to the virus, then perhaps there's a patient-specific difference in the response. That's something that we might be able to do in the future. I mean, there's many cell types in the heart so far as I know. So how did you know that cardiomyocytes would be the, the ones to use? Or, you know, did it look like from clinical data, you were able to zoom in and say, okay, it's probably this, this cell type. Right. It's a, it's a really good question. And it's something that clinically folks are still trying to figure out what is actually the predominant cell type in the heart that is being infected uh, by the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Of course, we can make a variety of different cell types, including the endothelial cells, which are the cells that line the blood vessels of the heart, the fibroblasts or the support structures, the support cells of the heart, and of course, the the famous cardiomyocytes, which are the contracting heart muscle cells. We can make all of these in a dish using various differentiation protocols from induced pluripotent stem cells. Um, we initially started the project by focusing on cardiomyocytes since you know those are actually the cells that we had uh, that were predominantly making in the lab but from from recent data that's been showing that endothelial cells are also potentially susceptible to infection, uh, we may also shift our studies in that regard. We may actually focus on some of these vascular endothelial cells and make those from iPSCs to, to model the, the course of infection as well. Well, in a dish, if you put together two or three different cell types, there may be a preferential infection in the presence of multiple cell types. You know, it may act a bit differently. And again, preferentially go after one first and then another. Um, do you think that would be valuable to look at or is it too much to look at? No, I think that would be extremely valuable to look at. And in fact, your your experiment and your project is only limited by the the strength of your model. And what we've shown so far is isolated two-dimensional cardiomyocytes are susceptible to infection. But the reality is, as you're alluding to, the heart has many different cell types, endothelial cells, fibroblasts, cardiomyocytes, and new model systems are actually emerging in the field of stem cell biology that are intersecting with tissue engineering. And this allows you to actually look at multiple cell types at the same time. So I can create an artificial chunk of tissue from induced pluripotent stem cells that actually harbors all of the cell types that I've mentioned. And then using technology such as single cell RNA sequencing, we can dissect the effect of individual cells on other cell types in that same tissue. So these are all things that we're hoping to do in the future. Yeah, are there any like off the shelf heart organoids you could use that, you know, might be more representative of a, of a real heart? Yeah, yeah. So uh, for heart organoids, it's something that uh, the, the field is definitely looking into. Uh, an organoid is, of course, a collection of 
an aggregate of various iPS-derived cells, um, including the cardiomyocytes, fibroblasts, endothelial cells. Off the shelf, I don't know if there's any available. There are some protocols that are out there um, for, you know, they vary in terms of how efficient they are, but you can make these so-called cardiac organoids in a dish after about a uh, three or four week long differentiation process. It's not as straightforward. It's not as easy as making two dimensional cells in a dish like what we do right now, but it, it's something that is possible. I'll just, uh, I'll just add to that, that the <clears throat> technology we're very interested in is this organ on chip technology, um, which allows you actually to seed into a microfluidic chip, heart cells on one side and on the other side, uh, you can seed in endothelial cells. So you can actually pass blood through the one channel um, and you could pass, and then on the other side of the beating cardiomyocytes, and you can include other cell types as well. The, the nice thing there is you could add the virus to the blood, uh, you know, representing viral anemia, where you actually get uh, transmission to the other organs through the, the virus itself leaking into the bloodstream, and then see if that mm. would then infect the heart through the endothelial cells. I think those kind of models are what we need to get to the critical question, which, which is underlying all of this research, which is, does this really happen in patients? Doing it in the dish is one thing and exposing the heart directly to the virus. But of course, the, the, the big question is, does this happen in patients? Um, and we're trying to get better models to answer that question uh, more accurately. Yeah, maybe in a, in a regular person, the virus passages through a few different cell types first and never directly you know, goes after the heart immediately. Or maybe it does. I don't know. Exactly. Uh, there's a lot of work uh, going on on postmortem tissue or biopsies of patient heart. And they're still inconclusive at the moment, um, you know, such a new disease. Uh, but there are some hints that there is virus, uh, live virus in the heart. Um, and we're trying to establish now with electron microscopy whether that virus is really getting into the, the cardiomyocytes or not. And so it's a very hot area and uh, it's a very important question. So what are you seeing in the dish so far? Uh, you know, is the, um, are you able to tell the method of entry? Is it any different from any other cell type? Um, you know, what's, what's unique about what you're seeing so far, if anything? Right. So we are seeing that the virus is able to enter the cardiomyocytes through the ACE2 receptor, which is the famous receptor that's um, found on, say, lung epithelium and the various lung tissues that are susceptible to viral infection. It's the same receptor that um, the cardiomyocytes are using for, for infection as, as well. And this is interesting because there's thought to be perhaps a tissue type specific difference um, based on uh, if a certain tissue highly expresses the ACE2 receptor, then perhaps that tissue is more susceptible to the virus. And you can model some of that susceptibility by looking at different tissue types derived from induced pluripotent stem cells as well. Yeah, I mean, just knowing the cell types of a heart, which ones just textbook you know express the most ace2 receptors which ones seem to be the most uh, easy to infect yeah it's it's a bit of a controversial topic it's known that the cardiomyocytes do express ace2 but that other cell types including endothelial cells and also the support other support cells of the heart uh, also express the ace2 receptor um, one study that's come out recently has demonstrated that in cases of heart failure in cases of severe heart failure the expression of ace2 is actually upregulated in cardiomyocytes and so that might actually make a little bit of sense in that uh, for individuals 
individuals who have already experienced some form of heart failure, they may actually be more susceptible to infection by the virus because we've, there have been a number of studies around the world and actually some recent studies from China that have shown the elevation in cardiac troponin, which is a biomarker for cardiac injury that's found in individuals who have been infected by COVID-19, been um, susceptible to COVID-19 and infected by the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So these two things are going hand in hand, the possibility of uh, cardiac disease and also the possibility of infection of various cell types in the heart. Yeah, once someone is infected with uh, SARS-CoV-2 and if it attacks their heart, I wonder if the heart trying to compensate upregulates these ACE2 um, receptors and therefore predisposes it to the infection continuing and worsening. Certainly. And that, that is something that, you know, we can examine potentially in a dish using our model systems. Uh, but really, ultimately, we would need more clinical data. And this is something that Clive alluded to. Uh, we need more clinical data to confirm uh, not only the suscept- cell type susceptibility to SARS-CoV-2 infection, um, but also just to examine the, using electron microscopy, as Clive alluded to, examine the mechanisms of how individual cells can actually uptake the virus. Uh, It's tough to really get some of these biopsy samples because as you might imagine, if somebody has COVID-19, the last thing that's probably on their mind and on their clinician's mind is to actually conduct a cardiac biopsy. That's a very invasive procedure and also something that is not you know readily conducted in in this particular setting, but that's the the type of experiment and the type of study that we would need to really confirm that human cardiomyocytes in vivo are actually being infected by this virus. I'll just add one thing: we were kind of surprised by is that the susceptibility of the cardiomyocyte is not like you've got to dump a whole ton of virus on. We went down to very low what's called MOI of, of viral infection, and they still were infected. And, since then, we've done uh, macrophages and lymphocytes to see if they're infected at the same MOIs, and there's zero infection of those cells. We also took over, I'm a neurobiologist by training, as, as Arun mentioned, uh, we took over some pure neurons, <clears throat> not neurons and astrocytes and glia, so pure neurons, and there was no infection at all at the same doses that we were infecting the cardiomyocytes very efficiently at. So I think it's interesting that they are highly susceptible, which means that if you have a patient <clears throat> who has viremia and has virus in, in the blood, there is a possibility that, that the heart could be infected. Now, just on that note, we've been looking at CEDARS a lot very intensely on patient plasma to see you know, how many actually have virus in the plasma. And it's turning out there definitely are a percentage of patients who, who get virus in the plasma. So, you know, the story's coming, getting, getting more and more focused. And just like you said, the patient has stress, the heart maybe upregulates uh, ACE receptor, and then this trickle of virus into the blood, which normally may not be enough to get to the heart, but under those circumstances, the heart, you know, gets infected. That's a hypothesis we're trying to, uh, we're trying to knock down. I love knocking down hypotheses and proving we're wrong, <laughs> but that's the one. We're if you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. What's, uh, what's the normal function of the ACE2 receptor, especially in the context of uh, the heart? So the ACE2 receptor in the context of the heart is, is normally involved for in, involved in cardiac homeostasis. It's a, it's a receptor that's actually expressed in other cell types as well. It's an enzyme that can generate uh, other small proteins and actually is, it's 
defined as the angio, angiotensin converting enzyme, right? So it's the, uh, this is the, the protein that's actually being co-opted uh, as a viral receptor. This is not normally what it does, but it's normally a biochemical pathway that's really important for regulating processes like blood pressure, okay? Blood pressure regulation and wound healing, also like in, inflammation. So this is pretty far away from what it's actually doing in the context of the virus. Uh, but because it's, it's a receptor, it's found at the cell surface, the virus is able to lock onto it and actually co-opt that receptor to get inside the cell. When, um, does anyone know when a virus uh, attaches to an ACE2 receptor, does it permanently block it off? You know, it's like the outer capsid sitting there blocking the receptor for good. Or does it come off and the receptor can be used again for its normal function? Yeah, so this receptor is typically internalized. And, and one, one thing to consider about these various types of proteins, not only just receptors, is that they're constantly cycling. So even though a receptor might be internalized into the cell after viral infection, uh, you know, there is additional receptor that's being created to replace it. So this is a, a really a cyclical process. And on a, on a given cell, how many ACE2 receptors might there be? It's tough to say for sure. And it certainly does vary based on cell type. As I, as I alluded to, there's tissue-specific expression of the ACE2 receptor. Uh, but there, there could be hundreds of these molecules, maybe even thousands of the molecules on individual cells. Um, and since they are there, they are, they are susceptible to infection by the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Uh, as long as the ACE2 receptor is there, it can be targeted by the virus. And there's also evidence that the ACE2 receptor is important for healthy function. <laughs> so there's this yin and yang one idea is to knock it down to stop the virus getting in. Uh, but there's actually some therapeutic approaches that are overexpressing it in order to protect cells after they get infected. Because one thing we showed in the paper uh, very nicely is, I think it was almost 90% uh, reduction in ACE2 expression when you uh, infect with the virus. Is that right, uh, Arun? That's right. So when the cells are actually infected by the virus, the ACE2 uh, expression is downregulated. And this is actually something that's, paralleling what, what we saw or what earlier studies have shown with the original SARS-CoV coronavirus from a couple of decades ago. Um, so there's a lot we don't know about how uh, this receptor is working in the context of uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection, uh, but we're starting to learn a lot more through our mechanistic studies. And the one other thing to mention is that there could be other co-receptors that are also helping to facilitate viral internalization. So receptors that can work with ACE2 to actually internalize the virus. And a very exciting uh, therapeutic approach, you know, is to use soluble ACE2. A, it sort of soaks up the virus <laughs> and sequesters it. Uh, and B, it has, seems to have some physiological helpful effect, you know, on the tissues. M more in the lung, this is being done, obviously, which is the primary infection site. But um, it's a very exciting area, actually, of, of potential medicine. Has anyone tried to make like a, a micelle, you know, with ACE2 receptors on the surface? So it would, uh, it would <clears throat> be like mothballs, <clears throat> you know, for the bacteria. That, I mean, sorry, for the virus, they would, uh, you know, try to empty their payloads into an empty, empty micelle or empty vesicle that has receptors on it. That's a good idea. <laughs> Just try it. I think the soluble ACE2 is the closest thing, right, Arun? Yeah, that's right. So any any way that you might be able to soak up the virus using an ACE2 that's outside of the cell, and maybe that way you can kind of interfere with the, the cell itself being infected. It's a good idea. 
Yeah, to keep it busy, you know, with other stuff, with toys. So, um, so when you now that you have your your cells, you're seeing the infection happening. Um, what else can you tell? Like, uh, you know, when a when a you know an IPS cardiomyocyte is infected, does it does it burst pretty quickly? Does it does the virus seem to you know passage through it quicker than other cell types? Uh, is there anything unique or interesting about it? Does it sit there quietly for a long time? I mean, what what do you notice versus infection of other cell types? Right. So with the cardiomyocytes, we're able to examine their contractility. So this is one thing. We can actually see them functionally contract at around 60 beats per minute, like you know the normal heart does. And we see that in response to the virus, the cells actually reduce their contractility. They, they have a drop in their overall beat rate. So that's, that's one thing. The other thing that does happen, as you just alluded to, is that the cells do ultimately die off. These isolated cardiomyocytes in a dish do you know ultimately succumb to the SARS-CoV-2 infection of course the caveat here is that there is absolutely no immune component in this study all we have are isolated two-dimensional cardiomyocytes in a dish this is of course very different to what happens in the body because you would have a dramatic immune response in after a viral infection but we're just looking at the cardiomyocytes themselves and the last thing that we actually saw was alterations in in uh, gene pathways in gene expression there are even though there are no immune cells in this population individual cells even like cardiomyocytes have their own cellular innate immune responses that they elicit in response to viral infection. So what do I mean by that? There are certain cytokines such as interleukins that are hyperactivated in response to even the infection of cardiomyocytes. This is completely in the absence of immune cells like macrophages and other things. But even at the cellular level, the cardiomyocyte level, they're still activating these innate immune responses to, to say, hey, I'm being infected. I got to protect myself somehow by activating some of these antiviral clearance pathways. So these are some of the things that we're seeing in response to viral infection. Changes in contractility, changes in gene expression, and overall changes in function. How many um, cells are you infecting at once or putting in the presence of virus? Yeah, so this is something we've titrated. We've subjected um, cells based on... Uh, we, this is something we wanted to examine. So we, we first threw a lot of virus on, on the cells. So say in a population of a million cells, we subjected the, the cells to a million particles of the virus. That's roughly uh, equivalent to a multiplicity of infection of one. So that's saying each cell is going to receive one viral particle. That's still pretty high. And we've actually gone down from there. So we've also got, looked at lower MOIs where we've said in a million cells, only 100,000 viral particles are going to be there. So that's uh, an MOI of 0.1. And these are all things that we've titrated to get a better understanding of how well the virus is actually proliferating on the cardiomyocytes. Have you tried to um, you know, put virus on one side of the, of the slide and watch a cascading effect like contractility changing in a wave across the cells as, as infection happens or look for communication amongst the cells you know, let's say the leftmost ones are infected for a period of 20 minutes and maybe it hasn't reached the rightmost ones yet, but yet they're communicating and affecting each other's behavior. 
That's a cool idea. It's not something we've looked at. Um, I would assume that if you have like a, a homogenous population of cardiomyocytes and you infect, say, like you were saying, the, the leftmost population of cells, that over a probably a period of hours, your that infection is going to spread because the replication cycle of this virus is is just a few hours. And because of that, this infection can spread rapidly across the culture. And and we would see a change in contractility as a result. Yeah, maybe you could see a cascade of gene expression, a cascade of uh, contractility. And I don't know if you're monitoring for like, you know, extracellular vesicles passed between the cells that would communicate as to what's going on with one of them or if that's blocked or changed or I don't know. I guess you could do a lot of experiments around that, but you can't do everything. No, I mean, that's, these are all fantastic ideas. Perhaps you want to come join us. Maybe you can help us out. <laughs> <laughs> if I had time, you know, I'll just give you, uh, I'll just give you too much work in the meantime with these ideas. Richard, you're very <laughs> welcome. Um, we are, we did just get a nice grant from the American Heart Association to do, you know, expand on what we've uh, already shown in the paper maybe just do some basic drug screening on the heart um, to look at things which block, you know, the effect, maybe losing the angiotensin uh, to ACE2 inhib- uh, uh, mimic as, as well to see if it does saturate the virus, et cetera. So we have these a lot of experiments that we're thinking about. And as usual, uh, we answered one question and raised about 60 others. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's true. So what's, um, what's like the next steps for you guys? What are you looking at in particular right now in this very moment to figure out? Yeah, so as Clive just mentioned, we just received a grant from the American Heart Association to take some of these studies to the next level. Uh, we talked about a few minutes ago about using microfluidic organ chips, these really revolutionary pieces of technology where you can grow multiple cell types on a single chip, which is just a few inches by a few inches. And the advantage of that is you can look at how multiple cell types are actually interacting in the context of, for example, this viral infection. We can look at endothelial cells and introduce the virus through a pseudo bloodstream, a pseudo blood vessel that's on this chip and see how that virus is actually going to travel across to the cardiac, uh, the heart muscle tissue side of the chip. So looking at these all in one integrated systems is really the, the, the future of what we want to do uh, in the months and years to come. I, I don't know if this is possible, but what if you were to infect a few myocardiocytes and then wash them so that, you know, supposedly there's little to no virus on them and just in them, and then introduce that as the means of infection to a population of other, you know, cardiomyocytes instead of just virus isolate pipetted in there. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. So I think what you're alluding to is even if you wash out the virus, would the cardiomyocytes actually secrete some of the the viral particles to other cardiomyocytes, maybe through extracellular vesicles and so on. I think this is actually something that uh, folks are looking into. And I think there is some literature on viral shedding in, in that manner, uh, but it's definitely an interesting topic of study. Okay. Well, very good. What's the best way for, uh, for people to keep tabs on, uh, on your work? Well, you can always um, follow us on, on Twitter, for example. You know, uh, we're both active on Twitter. You can follow along at Cedar sinai and see the, the type of amazing work that's going on at the Regenerative Medicine Institute and also at the Smith Heart Institute. Um, this is, a, as you might imagine, a very rapidly evolving area of study. It seems like every week there's a new paper that's coming out that's teaching us something new about how the virus is affecting not only the heart, but the other cells of the body. So, uh, follow along and you know i'm sure there's a lot we're going to learn in months to come 
That's yeah. great. Any any last comments, Clive? No, I just agree with Arun that uh, you know keep an eye on on our web pages uh, and you know this virus has, has really changed the world and I think moving forward, just about every institution is going to need to invest in uh, infectious diseases in some way because you know this this we can't afford to have this happen to the world again and so I think we need to be more prepared and and, and more ready next time around mm-hmm. and maybe you know the ways. The work that we're doing now will set the ground for preventing uh, future viral infection. Very good. Well, Clive and Arun, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for having us. Great. Thanks. All right. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.